all across the country, there were, there were stories of, of those kinds of things happening to farmers. Um, but there was, there was one local food co-op here in where I live in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, it's called Good Foods Co-op that they were able to keep their, um, keep their meat well stocked even when there was a meat shortage in big chain grocery stores, because they were able to find local farmers and source their products through those local farmers where most of your, you know, your big grocery stores like, like Kroger or Publix or Pickly Wiggly or wherever, whatever is in your neck of the woods. Um, a lot of, a lot of those stores, their contracts are with big distributors and it was those big distributors that for whatever reason had to make these quick decisions on, on meat and dairy and vegetable, but it's because they're pumping out so much. Welcome to Talk Ag to Me, the podcast dedicated to improving ag literacy around the globe. I'm your host, Brennan Black, and in today's episode, we're talking about a variety of topics, including mental health, nutrition, the food industry, and just overall the general balance between urban life and rural life. And to join us for this episode, we have our special guest here, Chris Rush. Chris, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the crowd? Hey, Brendan. Thanks for having me here. Uh, so yeah, my name is Chris Rush. I am the host of the Maximize podcast. Uh, it's a podcast about getting more of what you want from life. I have a background in marketing and nutrition. I studied both in college and I have both degrees. Uh, and, and I also um, am someone who struggles with anxiety. It's something that I've uh, been really, it's a journey I've really have gone down um, managing and, and understanding it better over the past couple of years. Uh, and so with that, a lot of what I say is going to come from either what I've learned in college, my experience, uh, things that I'm passionate about, um, things I've learned along the way that help others, or just things that make me curious. And um, and yeah, I'm happy to be here. So thanks for having me here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's, it's a sure pleasure. So I wanted to kind of touch on a couple of the things that you just mentioned there. Uh, so obviously, you've had some experience in, in the mental health realm. And um, as the listeners of this podcast uh, know, we've, we've had an episode in the past where we've talked about mental health and, and the role it plays in agriculture and in a farmer's life. Um, today, I wanted to get dive a little bit deeper into that topic, if you, know, if, if you don't mind talking about that, um, and, and really exploring the, the uh, mental health of, of both the farmer and the consumer and in ways that, that you know, they can improve that, you know, that general aspect of their life. Well, and, and, and that's a good topic to discuss because um, I think a lot of people realize this once they start getting exposed to what it takes to go into ag or to be a farmer, but, but they don't think about it. Being in agriculture, being a farmer is a very high pressure uh, career to take on. It's a very high pressure job to maintain. Mm -hmm. And why I talk about that with mental health is because usually it's, it's states or it's times of high pressure that cause some of our own mental health 
issues or struggles or whatever, however you want to talk about it, um, help it cause them to come to the surface. And people have got to realize that farmers are people first. They're individuals first. Like farming is their profession. It's what they do. It's their livelihood. But they're still a person first before being that farmer. Um, and when it comes to being a farmer, all the decisions in your life are revolved around that because it literally takes your entire time to produce the goods or services you're offering to people. Um, growing up, my parents always had a big garden in the background. And um, after I graduated college, they moved to a little bit of property. It's not huge, but it's enough for my mom to have a massive garden and do what she wants with that. They're not commercial farmers. They're not putting their food out there or pushing it to people in a, in a way that you would see from, you know, big organic farms or big cattle farms or whatever. Um, but it still takes all of my mom and my dad's time outside of their full-time jobs. Cause this is not something they did for their livelihood. This is something they did because they enjoy it. it takes all of their time outside of their full-time jobs to be able to maintain that garden the way they want to. Imagine if you're an actual farmer, imagine if that's your livelihood, that's what you're doing. You're not working eight hour days, five days a week and having a, day, a weekend off. You're working sun up to sun down seven days a week and you're living and breathing the farm that you're on. And you, that is not just like something you do for fun or, Hey, I'm going to have grow my own food, have a food source. That is literally what puts food on the table and what pays the bills. That's a lot of pressure. That means that if you fail in farming, your life fails. And in that kind of pressure, I mean, imagine if that was the pressure that you as an individual were going through and trying to sustain that until you're ready to retire. Decades on decades of just that kind of everyday grind. Um, that's hard. That's hard for anyone. And that's why it's important to remember the farmers are people first because they're going to have to cope with and work with any mental health issues that come up inside that pressure, just like any other person would, they're going to have to work with, you know, a, a therapist or, you know, maybe medication is something they need. Um, they're going to have to get help and, and learn from a professional what it takes to cope and to stay resilient so that whatever mental health issue that they're experiencing doesn't break them. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really, that's, that's good advice. It, it's something that I don't think people, uh, on, on either side, you know, really, they really think about too often is just the amount of pressure and stress that farmers go through. Um, you know, we, we've talked about before on this podcast, how, uh, agriculture is, is an incredibly stressful job. And some people, they never retire from it. They just, you know, even if they, they grow too old to actually do the work, they'll just sit there and manage the farm just because they don't trust that their kids are going to do it right. Or just because they're worried about their operation or simply just because they, have gone too long with, with, you know, working in that lifestyle that they can't just stop doing it. It's almost like they'll have withdrawals from being away from their farm for too long. And, and, and sometimes their kids don't want to do it. Right. Sometimes kids grow up on a farm and say, this isn't what I want for my life. I'm going to go to the big city and I want to do something, you know, white collar profession, whatever, mm -hmm. um, which is fine because we're all human. We're all entitled to what it is that makes us tick, what it is that we want to do with our lives. But 
imagine if you're a farmer and that's the decision your kid makes, you want to support their kid, but mm-hmm. you got to worry about your farm too, which means, all right, I can't retire. Um, or if I physically can't do the work, I'm going to have to pay someone else to do it. That's more pressure. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, absolutely. And you know, that's, that's actually a, a massive pressing issue right now in the agricultural community is, you know, finding replacements for uh, farms because, you know, newer generations are moving further and further away from agriculture, not necessarily because it's, you know, like they want to abandon the family farm, but just because, you know, if you don't have a passion for agriculture, you're not going to do well in it. Like that, you have to live and breathe. Like it's like you said, it's like you have to live and breathe your farm. And, you know, some of these, you know, newer generations coming in just, either they just don't care enough or, or maybe they do, but they just aren't cut, cut out for the work. And so they have to move on. Right. Oh, exactly. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's like being living inside a giant pressure keg for your entire life. Like that's, it's nuts. But here's the thing. The people who are doing it, know it, it's Mm -hmm. worth it to them. You Mm -hmm. know, they've made that choice. They've made their bed. They're lying in it. They, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing if they didn't love it. Mm -hmm. Which means that if mental health is, uh, is causing a, breakdown in something that they love then pressure goes up even more it's Mm. like once you figure out that there's an issue well now you want to solve the issue but you don't know how and when it's your mental health like how do you fix that right so so that's where it's important to remember that they're people first that they're Mm. people first and they need the same thing that every single human on this earth needs and that is a place to be able to make decisions and actively make decisions and then rest when necessary and, and be able to increase and decrease the balance between those things, depending on what their life needs. That's, that's every human beings need on this earth. That's what we need. Um, because if we don't have the ability to do that, then we can't make decisions for ourselves. And nutrition is completely driven by, by making decisions, empowering yeah. yourself to making the decisions that you want so that they work for you. Yeah, and that's a really clean transition to our next topic. Which before we get there, though, I just wanted to uh, go back on on you know the mental health conversation again on uh, the you know the, talking about how the agricultural you know, livelihood is is you know sometimes incredibly stressful, but people refuse to give it up because that's what they love more than anything else in their life. It's it's almost like a, par- a paradox. And I've talked about this with other guests before. How they usually see agriculture as kind of like a retirement job. You know, you, you retire from your stressful job just to go in and raise a farm because it seems more peaceful. Uh, when in reality, you know, there's a lot of agriculturalists who, uh, yes, they, they, you know, they find a lot of great joy in their job, but you know, it stresses them out more than, more than a desk job would. But it's, when I say it's a, it's a paradox of, you know, of mental health, it's because the same thing that's causing their mental health issues is it can also cure it. You know, there, there are several, actually there's, there's quite a few farmers who find, you know, great peace in being with their animals or with, you know, seeing their fields or, you know, being able to be out in something that they grew and, and feel the pride of saying like, I took care of that. I grew that I cultivated that and it, and it turned out really well, but just the, the massive stress from, you know, economic uh, issues from, you know, just regulations from uh, market fluctuations, like all that kind of stuff is just, sometimes too much to bear for that kind of thing. So it's, it's almost, I'm not sure if there's any other, and maybe there is, I'm just not thinking of it, but I'm not sure if there's any other industry that causes that level of paradoxical, you know, stress and, and uh, like stress relieving uh, sensation at the same time. You know, and I think that's a good point. I think there are other industries that offer that, 
but those industries aren't tied to a human necessity, Mm -hmm. which is we have to eat to survive. Right. Right. So, so you're doing something that's helping your community or your country or wherever survive, but you still have to survive to keep that up. Mm -hmm. So it's like that, that adds to the paradox. Yep. No, it's, it's um, just an ongoing circle of, of, you know, you, you work yourself to death to make sure that there's food to keep other people alive, but it's, you know, it's, it's that process that keeps you alive at the same time, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, now, are, are there any types of uh, mental disorders or mental health struggles that you've seen people within agriculture and, you know, farmers uh, suffer from the most or, you know, is, is, is that a thing? Uh, it's, I would say that the, the most common mental health struggle I've seen farmers go through is mostly anxiety. Um, Mm -hmm. I have seen some cases of depression, actually some severe cases of depression. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the 2008 and nine recession and and what happened in California. Um, a little bit, but, but tell me a little bit more about that because, um, I want to, I want to hear what you have to say. I'm not sure that I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay. So in, uh, I, I believe it started in 2007, but it didn't get really bad until 2009. Uh, there was this massive economic collapse in, um, well, I think it was in the entire United States. I was, I was only nine at the time, so I didn't really know what was happening. I didn't learn more about it until I got older. But um, essentially, you know, I, I grew up in a small town in California called Tulare. Uh, it's, a, you know, we call it cow town. There's dairies as far as I can see. And because of the economic collapse, all of the dairymen around, uh, around Tulare were, basically just you know they're shot in the foot by it because they just they couldn't come back from from the the level of, of milk prices at, you know how far it had dropped and it became so stressful for a lot of those farmers that you know nearly all of them hit some level of, of depression or anxiety or you know some level of of mental health degradation and and, and unfortunately uh, uh, much more than we would prefer uh, took their own lives because of it we lost a lot of good friends that year um, oh my Oh my! So it was it was an incredibly stressful year. I mean, not not just for the farmers, but for all the people who were supporting the farmers, because we're a very small town. So you know, it's all very community driven. Like everyone who, even like the urban dwellers, were very close with those farmers. And so when that happened, it kind of like opened our, our eyes a little bit to like, whoa, you know, farmers farmers aren't just doing this because they love it. Like it's actually it's it's taking a toll on them too. And and when stuff like this happens, there's there's no level of you know of relief for them. They can't get out of it. And it just either they they somehow tough it out and, and make it through or it just it takes them with it. And so it's it was a really hard thing for you know for my family and for and for our hometown to go through, but it was something that kind of made me realize how important this conversation is to have. Well and and you highlighted something for me, when you said that, that I'm not even sure you're probably aware of it, but I think it's important to point out you're on a, you're, you're talking about dairy farms in California. Mm-hmm. When people think of California, what do they think of? Uh, probably Silicon Valley or you mean in terms of agriculture? No, I mean, in terms of exactly what you just said, they think of Silicon Valley, they think of Hollywood, they mm-hmm. think of, you know, of LA, of San Francisco, they think of big city, um, very open-minded centers of mm-hmm. arts and engagement and creation and technology. And they don't think about a dairy farm. Right. So that's really important to understand because that shapes the kind of 
community outreach and the kind of order and the kind of social norms and the kind of rules and laws and everything that would affect the state of California. Mm -hmm. But the state of California isn't just LA and San Francisco. Right. It's also your hometown. And it's also a lot of places like it. California is a big state and there's a lot of land. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that a lot of people tend to overlook is California actually is the most agriculturally productive region in the entire world. Uh, if it's, it, it was said that if, if California was its own country, it would have like the fifth largest economy in the world just because of agriculture alone. Um, you know, if, if you look past the Silicon Valley and the Hollywood stuff, we grow more of every agricultural commodity in, in, the, in the United States than any other state. I mean, we grow more dairy than Wisconsin and Texas and, and New York. We grow more citrus than Florida. Like we, we produce all of it, but it gets overlooked because, you know, like you said, California is not seen as an agricultural land, even though we have the most fertile soil of, of anywhere else in the world. But it's just, you know, well, and, and, of, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, and 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 so um, living in a state like California, the economic policy that's put in place by the state is going to affect the cities and the and the uh, urban you know the urban areas differently than it would affect the farms in the rural areas. It's it's just going to, um, and so when you have a recession, and the recession is focused a lot on highly populated areas and that's where a lot of the relief and the help is going mm-hmm. the farmers get left out yep. and this isn't me getting political this is just me looking at at you know how humans do things mm-hmm. um that's hard so th- fast forward to now think about the pandemic yep i would imagine that mental health issues within the farming community are on the rise because they have been hit so hard by this pandemic Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I paint the colors for people. You, you tell them what that looks like because I'm not living it. Um, but you're right there and seeing it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure that you know a lot of people heard about the when when the pandemic first started. There was a significant amount of dairymen having to dump milk and uh, pork producers having to euthanize hogs before slaughter and just a massive amount of of commodity just being thrown down the drain that kind of level because farmers don't like to waste anything i mean anything they will reuse everything until it's until it's no longer being you know until it's no longer possible to reuse it so to have to waste that much product was just it was heartbreaking to them and you know they're losing money on it and they weren't getting uh very much government help for a long time from it and then you know i i luckily you know, it, it was it was a blessing, but none of the farmers from my area uh, were hit too hard because a lot of their milk went to areas that still needed milk, you know, and then they weren't uh, being backed up in terms of the processing of it. But um, a lot of areas from, you know, outside of, of my hometown were hit really hard by it. And not to mention we had, you know, the, the fires come in not too long after and that took out a lot of farmland and a lot of agricultural uh, facilities were were burned down because of it, which caused even more of a spike in mental health issues with with farmers. Um, some some of my own family members who are involved in agriculture were incredibly anxious all the time about what was going on with with you know um, not just the the actual you know uh, st- status of the pandemic itself, but of what long term ramifications it was going to have on on their family and their farms and. You know, at the end of the day, that was their their main concern was, you know, they're, you know, not because they were worried about losing their farm. That was a concern, too. But they were worried that if they lost their farm, they wouldn't be able to support their family anymore. And that was just too much for some of them. It sounds like a lot of fear to be handling at once. 
It definitely was. It was, it was something, I mean, even today, you know, some of them are still going through some of that. A lot of them have kind of uh, come off that because now the, you know, the economy is beginning to stabilize again in terms of agricultural commodities and they're able to somewhat get away from that stress. I mean, it's still there, but uh, it's, it's, it's much, you know, it's much less uh, prevalent than it was when, when everything first started, but there are some who are still, you know, not sure if they're going to be able to, you know, to be able to make enough money to feed their families every night. And they're, they're having to sell out their farms because of it. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think all across the country, there were, there were stories of those kinds of things happening to farmers. Um, but there was, there was one local food co-op here in where I live in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, it's called good foods co-op that they were able to keep their, um, keep their meat well stocked, even when there was a meat shortage in big chain grocery stores, because they were able to find local farmers and source their products through those local farmers where most of your, you know, your big grocery stores like, like Kroger or Publix or Pickly Wiggly or wherever, whatever is in your neck of the woods. Um, a lot of, a lot of those stores, their contracts are with big distributors and it was those big distributors that for whatever reason had to make these quick decisions on, on meat and dairy and vegetable, but it's because they're pumping out so much. Mm-hmm. And when people aren't buying at bulk because of pandemic or for whatever reason, you know, that really causes um, an impact on the entire industry outside of local. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's crazy to think that the solution to that for a local grocery store was the thing that differentiates them from all the other big name grocery stores, which is that they're using a local or a more direct supply chain mm-hmm. to offer their grocery services to their community. Isn't that something? Absolutely. Have you seen anything like that out where you are? Um, not a whole lot. Um, I mean, I know that our, our farmers markets were obviously affected by, you know, by it. And so we, we did see a larger surge of that kind of thing happening. Um, mm-hmm we didn't see a whole lot of change in how our local grocery stores were handling things just because they were already kind of like, we don't have a whole lot of like, you know, despite being a small town, we don't have a whole lot of stores that, that feed in from locally, you know, grown sources because a lot mm-hmm. of our farms out here outsource, you know, they, they export a lot of their material outside of California because that's what California is best at is just exporting, you know, uh, pr- uh, product to, to other mm-hmm. States and other countries. So we didn't see a whole lot of it around my area, but I did hear about it happening in other areas and it was really, really surprising to hear. Yeah. Um, well, and I think that points out another piece is that farming does not look the same all across the country. Mm-hmm. So the way that farmers in California distribute their goods is going to look different than the way that farmers in Kentucky do. Right. So you're going to see larger farms and more mass producing initiatives come from California, whereas maybe farms in Lexington are fueling different parts of the agricultural economy or they're focused more on local, uh, local food sustenance. Yep. And that, that, that matters. 
yeah, that has yeah, a direct impact on how your company can succeed. Because if you're producing milk for the entire country and people aren't buying milk and you have to throw out all of your milk, I mean, that completely erodes your business model. Mm-hmm. And for farmers, their farm is their business model. Right. Yeah. Agriculture is in a unique state where not only is their farm, their business model, but it's, it's kind of the, uh, you know, it's the, it's the life support keeping their, you know, their entire lifestyle going, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that, you know, no matter what happens, if you're, if you're running a business of any kind and that business goes under, it's, you're going to take a massive hit. Um, but you know, when, when you're running a business that like you mentioned is, is, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week and is, you know, he- heavily controlled by, this, the, not only the state you're in and, and like the, the actual regulations, but also the environment. I mean, you're, you're, you're going up against natural, you know, the potential for natural disasters and you're, and you're basically hoping and praying that, you know, that nature kind of takes its course and, and keeps your, your business going. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, besides, you know, obviously businesses that can get torn down by hurricanes and tornadoes, I'm not sure how many, uh, you know, enterprises are, are worried about whether or not nature is going to be on their side that day. Oh yeah. I mean, that makes, yeah, that makes complete sense. And that makes me wonder, you know, all of this, uh, all thing, everything we've been talking about. Um, and then also understanding that like we have one more layer of just reality affecting farmers in a different way than it affects the rest of us. Mm-hmm. What can we do as consumers to support the farming industry so that these farmers that we rely on so heavily can find some resilience as they struggle with their mental health? You know, that's my favorite question. I, I don't get asked that very often. I have been asked once or twice before, and every time I get asked, it's just, it's, it's such a good opportunity for, you know, for education and for having a good conversation. In reality, what I've, what I've been striving for on this podcast has been to try to uh, not just bridge the gap between, you know, farmer and consumer, you know, agriculture and, and urban life. Um, but, but try to see if I can just completely eradicate that gap and, and put those two groups back together into one, you know, single group again, um, you know, try to try to mitigate some of the, the differences that people see between agriculture and urban life and, and just kind of show like, you know, farmers are, are not only are farmers people too, but the consumer and the farmer have a lot more in common than they do different. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the working towards that is, is kind of the ultimate goal, but in terms of, you know, smaller things that consumers, you know, and the average person can do to support agriculture and, and to help them in, in this, you know, struggle is just, you know, remain, remain educated on what's going on. And I don't just mean, you know, be aware of, of everything that goes on in the ag industry, cause that's impossible, but uh, you know, just pay attention. You know, whenever you go into the store, pay attention to, you know, the labels on your food, pay attention to where it comes from, ask questions. If, you know, if you're not sure, um, don't just believe the first thing you read on Facebook, actually do research and make sure that something is, is true before you go out and go around spouting it. Because that's one of the larger issues facing agriculture is just, there's so much misinformation out there. It's, it's causing kind of a bad uh, view of, of not just the industry, but of the people running it as well. You know, people think that uh, farmers are, just, you know, crazy business tycoons that are just out for money and that, you know, they don't actually care about the consumer or that, you know, even worse that they have malicious intent towards them. And I'm not sure exactly where that originated from, but I have some, I have a feeling it has something to do with, you know, something on social media. So 
you know, just, just doing research, going out and, and talking to farmers, asking them to, to give you a tour of their farm. I guarantee you 90% of them will absolutely agree to, to show you around their facility. They're, they're pretty big fans of showing off what, what they do. So, um, you know, just kind of really the best advice I could give for somebody who wants to support agriculture is just trust that the people growing your food are doing it for your best interest. And that doesn't mean, you know, just sit by and, and accept it. If there's something about the industry you're not okay with, then, you know, we need to have the conversation about it. But that's only if it's, you know, if, if the research has been done, if the things have been proven, and if the, if the issue has been brought up and, and hasn't been addressed, you know, there, there's, there needs to be some steps in the process before you just say, I don't like what's happening in agriculture. We need to shut it all down right now. I also want to make another point to add to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to get political. So right. I'm going to try to say this and as, as transparent and as a, uh, as positive a statement as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how it is in California, but here in Kentucky, there are so many people who, when they think farmer, the first two words that pop in their head, redneck and hillbilly. Yep. People have never opened a book in their day. They don't wear shoes. They don't know what they're doing. All they know how to do is work the ground and work the land and, that's not true at all. Mm-hmm. There are farmers out there that are some of the most educated humans on this planet, but they have a love for growth, mm-hmm. natural growth, be it cattle, be it plants, whatever. They have a love for sustenance, being able to fuel a community by giving humans literally the one thing that they need for survival, food. Farmers have this love for these things, and in order to be successful, they have to become expert in their craft, just mm-hmm. like a lawyer would or a doctor would for a law firm or a hospital. Mm-hmm. It's so vital, which means they have to be educated in agricultural philosophy and agricultural technology and research and um, in the care of their animals and the quality of their plants. They have to be able to show up at the table when there's an argument between whether or not we should go organic or whether or not uh, GMOs are safe or unsafe, Mm -hmm. they have to understand how far down the rabbit hole that argument can go and and what parts of their industry it affects. There's so much that we as a populace take for granted that farmers just don't have the opportunity to take for granted. They don't have that luxury. There are some really, really intelligent people in the farming community. And so my challenge to listeners is when you think of farmer, get the words redneck and hillbilly out of your head because it has nothing to do with being a farmer. I like that idea. And that's definitely a big, you know, that's a big topic that we try to bring on as as often as possible on this show is just, you know, changing the image of what a farmer is in people's minds. And, and that's actually a reason why a lot of farmers no longer go by the term farmer, they go by the term agriculturist, because it has a different stigma to it, you know, it changes the the perspective of, you know, a, you know, old McDonald in, in his overalls with his pitchfork over his over his shoulder and his, and his one pail with his one cow in his cornfield, and changes it to something more scientific, you know, more sophisticated. And I, I actually, an old mentor of mine used to say all the time that farmers are the ultimate biologists, environmentalists, uh, mathematicians, businessmen, um, scientists, just overall, like they just, they have to have so many hats on at one time just to make sure their operation goes right because they're dealing with, you know, the environment, they're dealing with nature, they're dealing with biology. 
And if one thing goes wrong that they didn't account for, then their entire operation goes down. So, you know, these, these are incredibly educated people. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of farmers and agriculturalists today um, are, are going into this field, not because they, you know, they didn't want to go to college. They just wanted to work on the farm, but it's because they had such, you know, they, they had such a deep understanding of how their operation needs to be ran and all the intricacies of like, let's just take the dairy industry again, for example, you know, a farmer could tell you if you just said an ear tag number, he could tell you which cow that is, uh, how old it is, how long it's been alive, you know, in terms of uh, uh, like how, how, like what, what its mom's name was, uh, what feed it, ha- it has the nutrition of that cow, the health of that cow, like when it's going to have its next calf, everything, because they have to know that stuff. You know, they, they know their operation like the back of their hand. And so, and, and not just that, agriculture itself as an industry is, is expanded to more than just farming now. You know, uh, a lot of like scientific research, even like, you know, mining and fishing and lumber and all of those different industries, um, it, it, computer science, drone technology, you know, all of these different industries that we typically wouldn't associate with agriculture are all part of the same umbrella now just because of how closely intertwined they are in today's, you know, industrial, you know, society. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. Um, and that's something that's really people don't think about. Mm-hmm. But I think once you just kind of open their minds to that, it's like, oh yeah, that makes just that just makes sense. That's just common sense. <laughs> you know, I think that if we're if we ever figure out how to create something out of nothing, specifically food, whether it be use a 3D printer to create food or whatever, um, if we ever figure out how to do that and to do it cheaply and affordably so that the world no longer struggles with hunger and so that food is no longer something driven by um, cost, I bet you it's going to be a farmer that figures that out. I bet you it's <laughs> going to come from the farming community. You know, it, it really wouldn't surprise me. Some of the, some of the stuff they come up with is, is incredibly surprising. Um, we have um Back in my hometown of Tulare, we have uh, what's called the World Ag Expo. It's the world's largest ag exposition in the entire, you know, in the entire world. Um, People come from all over, from different countries, from all over the United States, from, you know, everywhere to my little cow town. And it's, it's an exposition of new agriculture technology. And they have some insane stuff. They have like precision precision technology that can scan your field and tell you um, in what areas there's the most microbial life and what areas there's insects that you need to spray for and what areas there's uh, low moisture content. They have, like they're working on um, electric forklifts now. They have technology that can, you know, uh, like it basically can just like scan um, like a kind of like a barcode on, on a cow's ear tag and it'll tell you how, how many steps that cow has taken that day. Like some of the, the levels of intricacy that they have in, in their technology today is just incredible and it's ever evolving too. So it's, it really wouldn't surprise me if we eventually got to the point where we had, you know, technology so advanced that we could just produce food without the massive need for, you know, massive scale production. And, and I think it would come from the agriculture industry if it was going to come from anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and everything you just said, I wish you could see my eyes right now. Like, <laughs> like deer in the headlights. I was like, Oh wow. That's amazing. <laughs> like that's, Oh, that's so cool. That's awesome, man. Oh yeah. And I have like a full, well, I did it for two years. I, I, I was asked to come on as the press team. So I have like, like four videos on my YouTube channel about, you know, all the different technology that they covered at the, at the farm shows. And so I, you know, it was, it was an unbelievable experience. It was like farmer Disneyland is what we used to call it. Oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> it was so cool. But I think that's a, yeah, that's a good uh, transitionary period into another topic that we wanted to 
discuss a little bit, which we mentioned a bit earlier, but that's kind of the, and, and we can kind of tie these two together, but the, the consumer relationship with food, you know, more specifically in, in terms of nutrition and how that influences kind of the food industry. So to answer that question, I want to take us back to something that I talked about in college in one of my marketing classes, studying consumer behavior. And it was in the early 2000s when trans fats first started really getting talked about, looked at, like, oh, maybe this is something that's not healthy for the human body. Do you want to know why there was a resistance to changing food? The resistance to selling healthier food was because nobody was buying it. Boy. Yeah. Oh boy. Exactly. Um, Listen, Pillsbury isn't out to give you coronary heart disease. (laughs) Coca-Cola is not out there trying to give you diabetes. Like that's not their goal. Their goal is to give you what you want because they are a private business. So they have to keep the lights on at the end of the day. They have to make sure their bottom line is where it needs to be. They're not out there just trying to ruin the world or burn the food industry to the ground with saturated fat and, and, and horrible, you know, um, infected cattle with full of, full of antibiotics. And that's not their goal. Their goal is to give people what they want. Their goal is to to bring the revenue in. So anyone listening, you consumers out there, and we're all food consumers, even if we're food producers, we're food consumers. Mm -hmm. You want healthier food? You got to start buying it. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's that simple. That that just reminds me of a conversation I had. Uh, I was was still in high school at at this point, and we we just read Fast Food Nation, and I don't know if you've, if you've read Fast Food Nation. It's, it's a very interesting book. Um, we had this discussion about, you know, marketing and advertising and how fast food advertises to kids and that kind of stuff. And we had this, this debate in class about whether or not McDonald's should be allowed to, you know, advertise to, to kids or whether or not McDonald's, like basically the argument turned into McDonald's should be blamed for people being fat. And I was like, no, just no. stop buying McDonald's. No, like McDonald's isn't forcing you to eat their burgers. You're just going there because it's easy and cheap. Like, you know, the, like the blame can't be set on the people who are just trying to make a living. Like, you know, if, if you want change, then be the change. And and I didn't like that argument very much. Well, it's a two way street. Should companies be responsible and should they offer a product that does not outright harm their consumer? Oh, absolutely. Right. I absolutely believe that. But as a consumer, it's your prerogative. Like if you're someone, let's, let's put it this way. We all know that smoking is bad for you. Mm-hmm. But if you're someone who smokes a pack a day, you full know well the damage you're causing to your body. You're mm-hmm. not clueless to that. You've decided for whatever reason that you're not ready to kick the addiction. You're not ready to kick the habit. It's something right. that you still want to do and you're going to keep doing it regardless of how it affects your body. Exactly. No, it's, so it's, so that's the thing is that you can't blame Philip Morris. You can't blame Marlboro or Camel for selling their cigarette when the customer knows that it's poison. They know that it's poison, but the customer still wants it. If nobody was buying cigarettes, there would be no tobacco industry. 
-hmm. You know, it's like, it's that simple. Um, With food, I think the argument comes in where we put the onus on the company because we have this idea of like, well, food shouldn't be driven by capitalism because it's a necessity. Well, let's look at the other option then where, where the, the um, control of how the food gets shared is um, coming from a central control, like, like the government or something. And like I said, I'm not trying to be political, right? Just talking realities here. Um, If the other option is that the government controls all of it, then you run the risk of potentially um, seeing the government pick and choose how, when, and what food gets where to mm-hmm. who. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's bad or good. I'm saying that there's risk involved. Right. So you, the consumer, if you want to be able to make the final decision on the food that you eat, then start making that decision because we already have a society that operates in that way. Mm-hmm. If you want healthier food, there's plenty of businesses out there that already see the value and are already offering it, such as the farmers living in Brendan's community back in his hometown. <laughs> like, come on. Like, let's go for a full circle here. Mm-hmm. So if you're someone that has developed an addiction to fast food or to food that is not good for you, at that point, it's no longer on the business for selling that food. You're the one that can, you're, you're, I'm sorry. You're the one that repetitively bought it. You're the one that formed the habit. You're the one that now has the addiction is addiction, a disease. Yes. Is it harder to treat? Yes. But let's be honest on who's responsible for that addiction. Okay. Like let's, and I'm not trying to make people feel bad. I'm not trying to be, you know, mean about this. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest about where the responsibility falls and when it falls. So at the onset, it is the responsibility of the company to offer the best product that they can, but it's also the responsibility of the customer to not buy a, 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 excuse my language, to not buy a shitty product. (laughs) If you know it's shitty, then don't buy it. Right. But if you know it's shitty and you buy it anyways, know that that's the choice that you made and own it. Own it. Be like, you know what? Here's an example. My chemistry teacher in high school, he was overweight. He liked junky food. He knew that. He knew the damage he was causing to his body. He said he didn't care. He said straight up, I know what I am. I know who I am and I know the choices I'm making. But this food tastes good and it's giving me pleasure And that's more important to me than my long-term health. So until a doctor says that I'm about to die, I'm going to keep eating the way I'm eating because I'm happy. (laughs) Yep. And that's fine. To that teacher, I'm like, go be you, man. Do you. Mm Because guess what? Soda is my weakness. Mm -hmm. When I'm feeling anxious, I want something carbonated. How 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 I've tried to beat that for myself is I don't keep sugary soda on hand mm-hmm. what i do is I'll, I'll keep a seltzer water in the house or a pack of them and i'll drink those mm-hmm. and if i want flavor i'll put in some of those like flavored vitamin packets just to make it a little bit sweeter mm-hmm. and usually that does it and usually i have that and i'm like oh actually now i can tell that my body didn't want the soda it wanted the water i'm just thirsty i should drink some water 
And if I get to the point where it's like, all right, I'm really craving a Coca-Cola right now. That that crisp dryness in that Coke with the sweet, I, I just want it. I'll go buy one. I'll go buy a 12 ounce or a 20 ounce or whatever I need. I'll go buy it. I'll drink it. I'll be done with it. By making that decision that way, I can healthily and proactively choose when I want the thing that's not good for me, but that brings me joy. Mm -hmm. And that should be the basis of everyone's approach to nutrition. It's not that McDonald's needs to disappear. It's that not, not that Pillsbury needs to stop selling toaster strudels. It's not that Coca-Cola shouldn't exist and that we shouldn't have soda. It's that is, it's the responsibility of us, the consumer, to define how frequently we want those things in our lives so that they, the businesses, can properly distribute their goods and services at a rate that balances our wants. Because when we go to the store, most of the time we know we should be buying what we need, but oftentimes we get stuck buying what we want. We have to be fully aware and conscious of how we're purchasing our food. When we buy what we want and when we buy what we need and we need to have balance, that will impact the agricultural industry in a way that supports farmers while supports consumers and gives consumers what they need to be healthy and also what they want to enjoy themselves. Absolutely. And I think that you hit the nail right on the head when you said that you know consumers don't understand the true power that they hold with their dollar. And that, I mean, like people ask me all the time about, you know, why the organic industry is so prevalent and, and you know, it's such a high dollar industry if, you know, the average consumer tends to not want to pay for organic. It's because, you know, somebody's paying for it. You know, organic, organic exists because people want it. You know, there's, there are certain aspects of the industry that exist because people are, are demanding it and that they'll, they'll pay enough for it that it remains, uh, you know, a, a rel relatively, you know, sufficient form of of production you know organic it you know just just to take an example um organic is is much harder to grow than your average conventional farm but people will go that route you know and because they know that they can make money there and so it's not to say that you know farmers are entirely profit driven because well they they are because they need they, they you know they need to be able to put food on their table but at, at the end of the day, they need to look at what's best for their operation. And if the money is there, then they're going to go, they're going to go for it, you know? And, you know, like just, you know, going back to your whole conversation about McDonald's not needing to disappear or, you know, people not needing to change what food is there. People don't realize that they are just as important, if not more important to the food production industry than anything else in the food production industry. You know, there's, there's the whole chain of command on how food gets to your plate. It starts at the farm, then the distributor takes it to the processor, it gets processed and packaged, and then the distributor takes it to the retailer, then the retailer sells it to the consumer, and then the consumer eats it. It seems like the consumer is the last step of the chain, but really the consumer is the first step of the chain because the consumer then tells, well, they, they tell it backwards almost. They tell the retailer what they want and don't want. The retailer tells the, you know, the, the processor what they want and don't want. The processor tells the farmer, and then it changes the industry on how we actually grow the food. You know, it's, it, it, while the production may be going one way, the chain of command is really the opposite direction. And people don't, don't know that, you know, they don't know how much power they, they really hold over their, not just their food, but, but over their food options too. Here's another, cause from what I understand, the, uh, <clears throat> the supply chain you just outlined is really, really 
perfect to describe the supply chain for, for grocery stores. Mm-hmm. For restaurants, it's a little bit different because from the processor, it doesn't go to the retailer. It goes to the wholesaler who then sells it to the restaurant. Right. Yeah, you're that's right. the difference. So it's a little there's there's one one or two steps less, but at the end of the day, it still ends up in the consumer's hands, the people's hands. Mm-hmm. And if people stop buying food at a restaurant, that restaurant fails. You know, I I don't know why, but but for whatever reason lately, my girlfriend and I have been binging uh kitchen nightmares with gordon ramsay <laughs> and you see all these mistakes that these restaurants are making and 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 stuff they're not doing right in the kitchen or the service or whatever and that's a perfect way to see that when you're not doing something the consumer wants you fail mm-hmm. you don't survive that's that's the power of the consumer that's the power of that's the purchasing power that every single one of us has mm-hmm that we don't think about is that the decisions we make and how we buy our food directly impacts the stability of the industries supporting the sale of that food. Right. So if we make decisions that show these industries, we don't want this thing, they're going to have to change it or they're going to fail and someone else is going to come in and replace them. Mm-hmm. Yep. But without that capitalistic nature Without us being able to choose what we want and don't want to buy, that control goes out the window. Mm-hmm. And it's not a conspiracy. It's not that like, oh, they're trying to keep us from recognizing that control. They're not hiding it from us. If we're too blind to see it or if we choose not to use it, that's, that's not on them. That's on us. We, are free. we live in a free society. We are free to make those decisions. Now, we can get into economies of scale and we can get into, you know, impoverished communities versus middle class versus well-off, you know, the, uh, the things that they can or cannot buy depending on the income that they have as people. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, when I say this, I'm, I'm not talking to the impoverished community. If, if, if junk food is cheaper than healthy food, that's all they're going to be able to eat. Cause that's what they can afford. That's not their fault. Right. The onus, the responsibility is on those that have to make the decisions that help those that have not get stronger. Mm-hmm. So if you're someone <clears throat> that has all the money in the world and the way that you support the food industry is by shopping at Starbucks, and I love Starbucks, so this isn't a dog on them, but shopping at Starbucks, eating out all the time, um, or having a private chef, or only buying the name brand items in the grocery store, um, only shopping organic um, while the rest of us maybe can't, can't afford it, whatever. When you're doing that, you're giving yourself exactly what you want, and that's beautiful. Don't stop giving yourself what you want, but let's add another layer of consciousness to it. Look at what you want and see if there are ways that you can buy it that support industries that help impoverished or lower income or middle income consumers because if you can support the industries that are helping those consumers properly support them those industries will grow and will become more affordable and will be able to get in the hands of the middle and the lower income consumers Hmm. what do i mean by that i'll put it bluntly again if you're wealthy and 
all you do is go out to restaurants and you never cook for yourself, you're not helping make organic food more affordable for lower income people or not even organic food. If that's what you're doing, you're not making regular store produce more affordable for low income people because you're not buying it. You're not putting your dollars in the market. It's almost like investing in stocks. Only you're not investing in a stock. You're investing in your food source. Right. The more money you put in that, the better that company does. Now for stocks, that means it goes up in price. Um, but depending on the frequency of people doing this in the economy, at first it might make things go up in price because it increases demand. But if you're a if you're a high income consumer, you have a lot of money to throw at those things, you can afford that demand to the point where that money goes into fueling the supply. And when supply grows larger than demand, prices go down. This isn't rocket science. This is literally just how it works. This is simple. Doesn't take much understanding. I didn't need a college degree to understand that. I don't I don't need college to tell me how supply and demand works. It's pretty simple. Supply goes up above demand, prices go down, and there's more at the table for everyone. Mm -hmm. But if demand is higher than supply, price is gonna be up because there's not enough to fuel the amount of people that want whatever it is. Here's the other option. If you're a well-off person, you're investing in stocks. You're investing in businesses. You're trying to figure out where to put your money. Put your money in agriculture. Put your money in the food supply. If you believe in the mission of organic, invest in organic. Invest in stocks that power the organic food industry so that they have more ability to create the supply and lower their cost. Invest. If, you, if it's not going to work in how you buy your food, then invest in ways so that the supply goes big so that it can handle the demand. Prices go down. Get creative with it. Mm -hmm. And if you're not sure, go ask people. Get curious. Ask, how can I support this industry? What can I do? How can I be a conscious consumer? And how can I buy things and put my money in places so that the rest of us are better off in the long run? Ask the question, and if the answer is there's no way, then that's fine. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. But there's always a way. You just have to find it. You have to be curious enough and patient enough to find that and then do it. Practice it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that it's, it's also worth mentioning, and you kind of started to touch on this, but it, you didn't exactly go the direction I was, I was thinking of. No, you're in, fine. Yeah, go for it. In terms of the um, – so you, like you mentioned how – the more of a product you buy, obviously, the more that product is going to be available. You know, like you're like you're going to lower the price of it, and you're going to increase the the quantity of it because you know obviously there's a there's a higher demand for it now. Not only that, there's also a competitive nature to capitalism. So if you only buy, like let's just say you know taking the organic example, or even just you know, just produce in general, if you just buy like oranges, you know every time that they're available that's going to, that's going to show up in the, in the, in the citrus industry. You know, we're, we're going to see ramifications in terms of, you know, people are, are taking a massive interest in these products. So let's, let's start gearing our, our production towards those products. And so as that happens, you know, agriculture is, is just as competitive as any other industry. 
farmers are going to, to adapt new methods that, that grow better fruit that's going to you know, go for a higher dollar. So you're, you're not only going to see more availability in, in terms of those products, you're going to see higher quality too. And so that's, that's a, you're, you're going to see new technology being developed. You're going to see new, you know, better tasting, uh, you know, higher quality, safer food. I mean, that, that's how we got, you know, foods like, like the, the cotton candy grapes and, you know, yes. stuff that is just kind so of good. Yeah, they are, but they're ridiculous expensive, but, oh, um, yeah. oh they're, yeah, they're, they're very good. But, um, but yeah, you know, stuff like that is, is the result of, of competition. You know, it shows people that, okay, well they have an interest in this thing. So I need to be different enough so people will buy mine. And so it, it causes some experimentation in the markets and then you get new and, and, you know, usually very high quality products that will overall just benefit the consumers. Cause at the end of the day, like I said, the consumer controls the equation. The farmer is just there to give the consumer the food. The consumer is the one that tells the farmer what to grow and how to grow it. And the more competition there is in that market, the better quality stuff you're going to get out, out the other end. So there's really no disadvantage to investing in a product that you think that there's worth quality and in, in investing in. Absolutely. And here's the other part with the whole organic. If nobody's buying vegetables, the entire farming community is going to, you know, this love it. Hold on. Let me, let me not be so hyperbolic. Let me be more specific. <laughs> If more people are buying fast food and and um, chemically or processed, chemically driven or processed food over freshly grown or freshly produced food, you're going to see cheaper prices in the processed food and higher prices in the freshly grown food. Mm-hmm. Partly because it's just easier and cheaper to produce processed food. That's just a fact, but also. Because now you have bidding wars, you have literal, literal, um, you have literal economic um, competition between Pepsi and Coke, between Wendy's and McDonald's, between Lay's and, and Ruffles, between Doritos and anything else, between uh, you know Tostitos and name another tortilla chip like name brand. Uh, Mission. Mission makes a lot of tortilla chips and and uh, and you know wraps and and things. Um, you know, you start to see competition in those areas, and you start to see some offering lower prices and some offering higher prices. Mm-hmm. We can't have that kind of competition in the agricultural industry if people aren't buying into the agricultural industry. Mm-hmm. So we see more and more fast food, more different flavored sodas, all those kind of things, chips, you know, hot dogs, hamburgers, whatever. We see those things on the rise because that's what people are buying. Mm-hmm. We see more affordable options within those things pop up because that's what people are buying. It's going to cause price stagnation in fresh produce, in in uh, grass-fed beef and and um, free-range chicken mm-hmm. versus, you know, grain-fed beef and mass-produced kitchen or kitchen. Wow, mass-produced chicken. <laughs> um, you've seen the pictures before the farms where there's just you know barns full of cages and there's a kitchen. Ah, wow. What is wrong with me today? (laughs) Um, Chickens and cages. And it's just lining up, you know, you have like 
a thousand chickens in one barn and each is is staying in like a one by one square foot cage, like no space. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to see stagnation in prices and you're going to see, con- um, you're going to see the convenience and the cheapness of producing fresh food and meat be the number one decision maker in agriculture if no one's buying it. Why? Because they have to cut costs. They have to be able to afford because they have all of this supply and not enough demand. Mm. Things get thrown away. Things get, um, you know, tossed with. And I know that at one point we were talking about how greater supply and lower demand equals cheaper prices. But what happens when no one's buying it and you have to throw it all out? It's going to waste. Food waste is one of the number one causes in expensive agricultural costs. Yep. And if we're all buying processed food and we're not buying fresh produce and fresh meats, what does that do? It increases the waste within the agricultural community because food does go bad. And when it goes bad, your only option, whether it's in the grocery store or on the farm, is to throw it away. Yep. Uh, that increased costs. So you all want to see a decrease in cost in agriculture? Buy more fresh food. Yep. You don't have to go all organic. Now, if if you are someone who can afford it, I would say don't shop organic in the store. I would say buy just the regular produce on the shelves, but then invest your money in the organic agricultural community Mm -hmm. because that way you're helping to increase the supply without causing an increase in demand so that prices can go down because they're not throwing food away in organics well if they are i'm not aware of it not that i can think of it's a niche market it's a subset of the agricultural industry right so they're able to manage waste because they don't have to worry about cost because they can charge a premium on their food and those who want that premium will buy it. What will help them lower their costs in organics is A, as we see more advancement in agriculture, that's with anything, the more advanced we are, the the more affordable the um, advancements are of today are as opposed to the advancements of tomorrow. It's like cell phones. You know, look at your cell phone. The iPhone... 10 was the first thousand dollar cell phone that was on the market Mm -hmm. iphone x before that the average price of an iphone was like what six seven hundred dollars yeah just about well that was the you know and and i think you gotta remember when the 10 came out but that means that the technology of tomorrow aka at the time the iphone 10 is more expensive than the technology of today because now the technology of today is the technology of yesterday. It's all transition. So as more technology becomes rampant in the agricultural community, it's going to help lower costs and it's going to help modernize and update the way that different farmers in different areas of the country are able to do their work. Because if you're a farmer in a poor rural area, 
you're not going to be able to have the most updated technology to do your work. Mm -hmm. And if technology advancements are not made in agriculture, it means that those poor farmers are doing the most manual labor possible to produce the least amount of goods because they don't have any other option. <laughs> so if you're someone who likes to buy food in organics and can afford it, why don't you think about investing in agricultural technology so that the entire agricultural community gets better? That way, that poor farmer can start to afford things that will make his job easier so he can produce more. You're increasing the supply. It's going to make fresh foods go down. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we saw government welfare programs like food stamps push people towards buying fresh produce instead of a bag of chips? Mm -hmm. That's only possible with agricultural technology, people. We have to get there. Right now, what we're seeing through our purchasing habits, through our welfare programs, and through the industries we have is that right now, it's more affordable, it's more cost-effective if we focus on processed foods. Mm -hmm. But what that does is it causes those that are most hungry to only have one option from their food source. And you see an increase in diabetes. You see an increase in um, obesity and coronary heart disease. You're shorten, shortening the longevity of life for those who are impoverished. I mean, all of these things. And it goes back to our food and our investment habits. Yep. So the answer is not Let's change the rules and mandate everything. The answer is, as a community, let's start making decisions for ourselves that have a ripple effect and that impact the way that we do things with regard to food and agriculture. That helps farmers decrease their mental health issues because they can get easier and easier technological advancements that help them do their job more efficiently with less work, mm -hmm. with the same output. Yep. That means that what they're currently doing that other poor farmers can't do, those poor farmers can now afford it. You've moved the bar forward. They can afford it. They can start doing more, do better. The way that we increase the ability for more people to eat healthy is to A, empower them to be able to make that choice and B, empower others to be able to supply them with that option at an affordable cost. We have to start being conscious consumers and we have to start investing in agricultural economy and in technological strides within that economy. That's it. And we have to stop wasting, but that's a whole other comment that oh, that's yeah. a whole other conversation that pulls in uh, law and policy as well as habit mm -hmm. and um, expectation. And I don't want to go there because we'd be here for an, an entire day. <laughs> Might have to do a part two for that one. That could be a part two. <laughs> um, but I think you get the gist. You want to, you want to simplify that I'm sorry, you want to simplify that for the listeners because I just went down a rabbit hole and <laughs> I want to make sure that they can consume exactly what I just gave them. I can simplify it with one short story. So I, as I mentioned, uh, we have the World Leg Expo happen in Tulare every year. It didn't happen this year for obvious reasons, or it happens in February, so I guess it's not going to happen this year for obvious reasons. Um, but before I started doing the podcast when I was in high school, I would go uh, just as part of my, you know, part of my school's uh, FFA organization, and I would just go in there and just talk to people. And I got to talk to a Swedish farmer, 
and he was actually more of a more of an agricultural researcher but he i think he said that he farmed as well i can't remember for sure but uh he was a, a swedish agriculturalist and we were discussing uh foreign agriculture and so as as i'm sure some people or, or maybe not uh but i'm sure that some of you know that in other countries and actually a lot of countries um it's it's actually uh against the law to use genetic modification in their agricultural practices in yep, Sweden's one of them. Yep, in in, Agri- in most African countries, that's the case. In a lot of European countries, that's the case. Um, they completely outlaw GMOs in every way, shape, and form. The, the interesting thing about Sweden, and I was talking to him about this, was that at this time it, it hadn't been outlawed yet, um, but it was on its way. So he had told me that in in Sweden, GMOs weren't outlawed, but they might as well have been because nobody re- would buy them. And the government didn't, didn't make it illegal for a long time just because they didn't really feel a need to because nobody grew with GMOs because the markets were just like, like if, if they tried to sell a GMO product, it wouldn't sell. You know, like the, the consumers completely and unanimously, unanimously, unanimously just said, no, we're not going to buy GMO products. And for anyone who knows, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go too far into it, but I uh, personally am, am in support of, of genetically modified, you know, organisms in terms of like the technology and, and the science behind it. But that's beside the point. Um, that, that's why this, this was so shocking to me. And I actually brought it up in a former episode where we talked about uh, GMOs, but it just showed the true power of the consumer and that they could basically outlaw an entire not just a, not just a, a food an entire way of growing food an entire technology from a country just because they didn't want it and their reasons for not wanting it weren't really founded in a whole lot if everything from what he was telling me was just because they didn't trust it um there wasn't any research that they had that they had done that showed anything negative about it they were like oh yeah we don't want that it was basically just enough people didn't trust it and so they just stopped buying it and the boycott was so strong that they just outlawed gmos entirely from from the country and so that showed the true power of their consumer you know choice you know it was it was all about like and that fluctuated their entire economy like there was a massive change in sweden after that happened from what he told me because they were relying more on imports they were relying on you know different uh, agricultural methods to try to grow their food without gmos and it, it changed a lot of, of how agriculture worked in their country and and in some ways for the better and in some ways for the worse. And so that just shows, you know, the true power of the consumer and, and just how much influence you guys have over how your food is grown and over how your markets are ran. So, you know, don't, don't think for a second that, you know, just because you buy processed foods and that, and and everyone else is just going to go ahead and go buy, you know, the, the fresh produce and, and fix the, you know, fix the markets. That's not how it works. You know, if, if, if you want, like I mentioned earlier with, um, I can't remember what we were talking about, something about, about nutrition or McDonald's or something like that. If you want to see change, then you have to take the first step and, and be that change. Because if you just say, oh, well, someone else will do it, what's going to stop them from saying the same thing and then it doesn't happen? You know, so yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm all for change in agriculture because I think the agriculture is, is constantly changing and that I'm always interested in seeing new developments in it. But if, if consumers want agriculture to be, to behave a certain way, then they need to take the step forward and either make that choice with their purchasing decisions or go talk to the farmers about it themselves and, and, and figure out, first of all, why the, the, you know, the markets are the way they are, why the products are sold the way they are. And it's exactly what we just told you. It's, it's entirely you know, demand-based and, and also because of efficiency and, and ease of production. But if they want change, then they're going to have to take the step forward and do it themselves because nobody else is going to do it for them. Absolutely. And, and here's what I have to say about GMOs. 
we had to talk about, I have one class where that's pretty much all we ever talked about. <laughs> and it was about how bad they are. Yeah. But we never talked about what potential benefits could come from them. Right. Here's my opinion on GMOs. I don't think at the current state of the industry, GMOs should be hitting the uh, storefronts and it shouldn't be something driven by consumer choice. I think it should be something that is still in research phase and that is driven by research and by um, successful steps forward with regard to food sustenance. Mm -hmm. Food sustenance that does not have a negative impact on the consumer. Um, here's a perfect example of that. You work in the dairy industry. I'm sure you've talked about or heard about or seen firsthand, um, you know, growth hormones put in cattle that produce milk. Mm -hmm. RBST. Yep. And how that can have some interesting and potentially dangerous effects on the human body over a long period of time. And they started to see that with, uh, with children, mm -hmm. um, you know, specifically the millennial generation and things or baby boomers, even things that started happening. And they're like, why is this happening? This isn't healthy. And then they realized it had to do with the, uh, it had to do with the effects of the growth hormone and milk that's put in in the cows to cause them to mass produce the milk at at unnatural rates but as a result it affects the uh growth structure of the human body mm -hmm. that should have never made it to the storefronts without being properly researched to understand that that's the impact of that specific gmo and it's not safe mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that all GMOs are bad or dangerous. It means that we need to research them and under, understand where they fit in our lives. Where's the positive impact? How do they help us grow? Uh, I mean, if you want to cure world hunger, you're going to have to do it with a GMO because you're going to have to be able to grow crops in areas of the world that are not capable of sustaining natural crop growth without technological modification. Mm-hmm. If you genetically modify the organics of that vegetable, of that fruit, of that meat, of that whatever, so that it can grow in harsh terrain, areas where it naturally wouldn't grow, you're one step closer to limiting world hunger and food shortages, for food shortages around the globe. But you have to make sure you're doing it in a way that does not poison or damage the health of the populations you're trying to serve. Mm -hmm. GMOs have a place. They are a tool that can be very, very beneficial. We have to use them the right way, mm -hmm. which means we have to do the right research first. Here's another example. Did you know that all of the corn on the shelves in the United States is not the same corn that was grown when the colonies were first harvesting corn. I did. The reason that is, here's why. Here's the first type of GMO, and it technically wasn't even a GMO, but, it, but I'll, I'll explain. 
They noticed that white corn was sweeter than yellow corn. The yellow corn was bitter and not as many people wanted it. So they started crossbreeding the white and the yellow corn to get a sweeter yellow corn that offered the same nutrient as the yellow corn because the white corn doesn't have as much nutrients. Um, but it tastes better. Mm-hmm. What they forgot was that the flavor was directly tied to the amount of nutrient in the corn. That bitterness that they were tasting was the concentration of nutrients being higher in yellow corn than in white corn. The yellow corn that you find today is nowhere as healthy as the yellow corn that you would have found grown in the 15 and 1600s. Why? Because we've diluted it to get a better taste because that's what we decided was more important to us. Back then we didn't have the science to understand that we do now. Right. So the only way we're going to be able to get nutrients back into corn so that you have a highly nutritious corn, um, crop thank you i blanked <laughs> yes so that you have a highly nutritious corn crop that tastes good the only way to get there is gmos because we already ruined that right you can't crossbreed something with something else so that something else doesn't exist anymore mm-hmm. you have to get there with gmos um they don't have to be dangerous they don't have to be scary they have to be used properly that's the key So we just have to be more conscious about our decisions. Mm -hmm. And that goes right back to what I was saying about our buying power, our, our, um, our, you know, our power as a consumer to make choices and be and consciously choose what it is we purchase and use you know, that has to be a consumer thing. It has to be a research thing. It has to be an industry thing. We all have to make that choice together. And like Brendan said, if we are waiting for someone else to do it, it's not going to happen because other people are waiting for us to do it as well. It's the bystander effect. You talk about it in psychology, get a group of people together. Uh, somebody gets in an accident. Somebody breaks their arm. We talked about this when I was lifeguarding in college, just as my part-time job. Don't say somebody call the 911. Don't say somebody help this person. If you see that it's happening, delegate. Mm-hmm. You sit there and say, hey, you guy over there in the red hat or the black shirt or the blue pants or whatever. He'll look at you. Yeah, you me? Yeah, you. Call 911. This person needs help. Tell them. You had a phone? Yeah. Call 911. Tell them. Because until you do that, you're waiting for them to do it. They're waiting for you to do it because they're all looking at each other thinking, well, should we call 911? Who should be calling 911? What do we do? Mm-hmm. All it takes is for someone to be the voice of reason and say, hey, go do this. Right. Don't be the bystander. Be the decision maker. Be the change that you want to see. It's cliche, but it's cliche because it works, because it's true. Mm-hmm. Do it. Just make the choice. Don't wait for somebody else. And if for any other reason, do it for yourself because you deserve it, because you deserve better. You know, if, if you're not going to do it for the community, do it for yourself because you deserve it. You're worth it. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. No, and I would say that. You know, in terms of that whole, which 
GMO thing aside, because I have a million and one things to say on GMOs all the time, but that that could be a whole nother part too. Um, in, in terms of the whole conversation of, you know, do it yourself first kind of thing. I think that this all kind of goes back to, and this is another point that we, this is actually the last point I, I had for us to, to talk about. This all goes back to the relationship between consumer and producer. You know, it goes back to the relationship between the the source of the food and its final destination and you know how those parties communicate and i think that the the you know the best thing that we could encourage here and this is another thing that goes back to the whole you know how consume how can consumers help help out agriculture is just having better conversations about it you know having having more awareness for what's going on is great but it does nothing if if no action is taken and while I'm not necessarily going to say that you have to go out and, and, you know, make, you know, either political action or you have to go out and talk to farmers, you can, if you want to, but I'm not going to necessarily require you to, I would encourage people to just have better conversations about do what we're doing right now. You know, just talk about things, even in hypotheticals, just talk about, you know, Oh, what would happen if, if this happened or what would happen if, you know, if, if X and Y happened, you know? So I think that it's, it's, it's important for, for people to understand that the relationship between the producer and the consumer, between the farmer and the, you know, the, the buyer between, you know, and, and not just them, but the entire step of the food chain is important to understand that because they all depend on each other. You know, the consumer and the farmer depend on each other more than, more than anything. You know, they, they have to, like one can't exist without the other, basically, you know, they, they are infinitely dependent on each other for survival. And for that to, remain the case they have to be in better communication than they are right now i think that's that's the the ultimate moral of the story is that you know we should be striving towards fixing that that communication barrier that's been here here for so long and we need to get back to the case because you know people used to live all the time of you know you had like your neighbor was a farmer or you had some chickens in your backyard or you had a cow next door like you know agriculture and, and urban development were weren't very far apart for for you know forever and then eventually as urban development began to, to boom, that distinction between the two started to grow more and more. And now we're at the, the case where we are now, where they're basically two separate types of people, you know, urban, urban dwellers and, and urban and uh, rural dwellers are, are basically from two different cultures, even if they live in the same area. And the, the only way we're going to be able to fix that is to have the conversations that, that we used to have, you know, get people back into, and, you know, like we, like, like, like we even mentioned before recording the whole idea of blending communities, um, you know, whether it be with, with gardens or with, you know, farm tours or just having more interaction with the farmer's markets or with conversations with, with between producer and consumer, however communities see best to do it. I think that that's probably the healthiest next step towards that goal. I don't, I, I don't know if you, if you have any more to say on that. Uh, yeah, I uh, first of all, I 100% agree with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked about that grocery store, the local co-op here. Yep. That's a cooperative. Right. That's not a big national chain. It's not one dude who just decided to run a grocery store. It's a group of people who decided, hey, let's pull our money together. Let's become shareholders of this co-op so that we can fund and fuel the local community from a perspective of food sustenance. And because of that, when the rest of us were scrambling for toilet paper and we couldn't find hamburger on the shelves at our local grocery store, Mm -hmm. they were able to continue stocking their meat supply Mm -hmm. because they were able to source from smaller supply chains that don't normally get sourced by the bigger stores. It's all about your community. 
And that community can spread outward. It can be your city. It could be your state. It could be your region within the state, your county. It could be your, your uh, section, your region of the country. It could be the entire country. It doesn't matter the size of the community, but in order for the community to function well, everyone has to be playing their part and they have to be the ones making the decision. It can't be mandated top down. Mm-hmm. Not saying that I'm against government regulation or having government involved in the equation. What I'm saying is that it has to be something that we, the communities of the country or the world or wherever, whatever your microscope is focused on, <laughs> it has to be our communities that make the decision first in tandem with those at the top making the decision there so that we can meet in the middle and have the correct and most harmonious kind of balance possible. Now, here's the other part I want to say about this. When you buy, let's say, uh, a bag of bell peppers at your grocery store, you're not just paying the farmer. You're not just paying the grocery store. You're paying the delivery driver that delivered it from the, from the wholesaler to that grocery store. You're paying the wholesaler that regularly sources that green pepper so that it can be on the grocery store shelves. You're paying the processor who receives that, that um, pepper from the distributor, AKA the farmer, to be able to make sure it is ready for wholesale shipping and selling at a retail level. You're paying the truck drivers that get it from point A to point B because without them, that's not going anywhere. You're paying the businessmen sitting in the corporate offices running those parts of the supply chain from a business standpoint so that they can be fully operational and continue doing what they do. And you're paying the farmer. Yep. And just as you you rely on those sources for that bell pepper so you can use it however you want to, they rely on you knowing that you're going to buy that bell pepper so they can continue providing it. Mm -hmm. It's harmony. It's balance. It's not one directional. It's multi-directional and everyone has to be involved and they have to be appreciated and celebrated and they have to have a voice at the seat of the table because if they don't their perspective doesn't get heard and if their perspective isn't get heard then blind spots are created where weaknesses can arise that can threaten the entire operation mm. we've got to stop fighting with each other we've got to stop telling each other that our perspective is better than somebody else's mm-hmm. we have to offer our perspective and welcome other people's perspectives so that we can pick and choose from the best of all of it. We can't make that choice. We can't pick and we can't choose if we don't listen to each other. And if there's anything that is indicative, and I keep saying I don't want to get political, but here we are. <laughs> if there's anything indicative of people not listening to each other, it's this damn election that we just got out of. <laughs> yeah. No, I couldn't. And I'm not that. saying who's right or who's wrong. I'm not saying that there wasn't a bad guy or there wasn't a good guy, but I'm saying that we're not listening to each other and that's why we're having the erosion that we're having. But it doesn't matter if it's politics or agriculture. Mm -hmm. We have to start working together and we have to start listening to each other. And I sound frustrated because I am, because I don't see people doing it. (laughs) 
Yep. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I've vocalized that same statement multiple times on this show. It's something that I talk about nonstop is that there's nothing more important than the conversation. And the conversation is the one thing we're not having right now. It's, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we're so focused on ourselves and, and what we think is right that we're, we're forgetting to look at the other side and say, Oh yeah, they, they're important too. We should probably try to take care of them and they'll take care of us in the future. And that's just not happening. I mean, and that, you know, like, like you said, that, that spans out to more than just the agriculture consumer conversation, but it's especially important for that one as well. Cause you know, as we mentioned at the beginning of this show, food is, is fundamentally, you know, one of, if not the, the most important things that we, that we have in life, you know, we, we need, we need access to food first and foremost above anything else. We can't afford to tear apart the industry that's producing our food and we can't afford to burn the people who are buying the food we, right. we need to have a better relationship between those two parties get rid of the blame game just do the right thing <laughs> mm-hmm. i'm sorry i sound i sound like an <laughs> idealist right now but i mean it, it comes down to being that simple it, it really is stop playing the blame game and just get to work on whatever the problem is offer mm-hmm. the solution because if you focus on who to blame you're not focused on doing the work to solve the problem right and it doesn't matter who's at fault at this point because the problem needs to be solved. So let's just talk about it. Let's not try to blame each other anymore. It's not fun. I don't like getting passionate. I don't like getting <laughs> frustrated on somebody else's podcast. No, you're fine. Like, it's not, I mean, it sounds fun. It sounds like, a, but seriously, it would be much more fun if Brendan and I were here just talking about blue skies and butterflies and, and what makes mm-hmm. the world go around. Like, happy stuff. But we have to learn how to talk about the bad if we're going to get to be able to talk about the good. And yeah. we have to stop placing blame. I mean, it just, it, it, we've gotten to a point where there's no point anymore. <laughs> we've gotten to a point where there is no point. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And, and I, you know, as much as I love like the, you know, the fun trivia episodes and that kind of thing, these are the conversations that are the most important. And when I get asked why I'm doing this podcast, this is why, you know, it, it's because, I see a massive issue and it's not being solved. So I'm, I'm, you know, taking an issue to try to, to try to push that forward and, and, you know, do my part to solve it, have the conversations, you know, have, have that, you know, that connection with people who aren't necessarily from the same background as I am, or, or maybe don't have the same experience as I do. And maybe, maybe they even have different experiences in the same field as I do. And they can bring a different perspective to things. I think that being able to, to reach across and, and find people like that. And, the fact that, that I, I say reach across is, is part of the issue as well. Like I've, I've been advocating for the idea of, you know, we can still have the farmer and the consumer, but don't treat them as if they're a different species from each other. You know, we're all still human. We're all still part of the same issue. It's like we started off the episode with, we all, you know, farmers bleed too. you know, farmers go through the same issues that everyone else goes through. It's just that the context in which we, we view those issues is different because they're not part of our lifestyle or we're not part of their lifestyle. And so it's, it's creating this division that's completely unnecessary. You know, we're at the end of the day, we all need to have each other's backs because we all need food and we all need to keep each other happy and healthy and, and alive. And, and at the end, you know, I, I don't think that that's something that's really arguable. You know, I, I, that seems to be common sense to me. Yeah. I mean, without the sun, there's no light without light. There's no dark. Right. Well, without city, there's no country. The country, there's no city. I mean, rural, you know, the, they're, they're opposites, but opposites exist in a balance. Mm-hmm. You have to have both. 
Because without both, you only have one. And if you only have one, then what's rural mean anymore? What's urban mean? It's all the same. Right. What's the point of having the contrast? It's all the same. They need each other to exist at their full strength. Exactly. We have to be able to prop both up. And to throw the podcast title out there, we have to maximize. <laughs> we have to be maximized in our pursuit of each. Cities have to be thriving, but so do so do farmland. So does farmland. So do rural areas. You have to have both. Sometimes one's going to be thriving more than the other. And sometimes it's going to flip flop and that's okay. We have to have that balance. We have to have that give and take mm-hmm. because otherwise growth doesn't occur. Exactly. The way that we succeed is to ensure that growth can occur most naturally in both places. Mm-hmm. And if it's occurring most naturally, then that give and take is not going to cause a breakdown that threatens the existence of one or the other. That's the key. Mm. Why are farmers struggling with their mental health right now? Their existence is being threatened by something that is out of their control, out of our control as well. Mm-hmm. So we have to come together as a community and as a city like Lexington, we have to look at the horse farms around us in Versailles and Georgetown, Kentucky and other places and say, what can we do as a city to help prop you up so that some of our success bleeds into you in these trying times. Mm. And in other times they have to look at us and say, okay, how can we funnel our success back into you so that you can economize and monetize it better and, and make it bigger and, and stronger you have to have the back and forth, Mm -hmm. which means that the dairy farms in California have to be looking at Silicon Valley and Hollywood and saying, how can we support you so that you guys grow? But they have to turn around and say, how can we support you dairy farms so that you all grow? Because you need each other. Because who's buying the milk? The people in LA and San Francisco. Who's Mm -hmm. making the milk? The people in your hometown. Exactly. So you need each other. Be there. Support each other. (laughs) Stop trying to tell each other that one way is better than the other. There's more than one way to skin a cat. There's no way to be perfect at life. It's impossible. You do what you can. You do what you're good at. And you share that with other people. And other people will share it back with you. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think that that's a a good and healthy place to um, go ahead and wrap up this conversation. And since you already brought it up, why don't you go ahead and remind everybody about your show and your podcast and where they can find you, anything else you want to plug? Absolutely. So again, my name is Chris Rush. I am the host of the Maximized Podcast where we talk about helping you get more out of life. So if that's fitness goals, nutrition goals, maybe you want to feel better at your job. Maybe you want to be more positive. Maybe you want to figure out how to explore your own mental health, whatever it is. We talk about and bring guests on to talk about those very things so that you can get more of what you want, get more out of your life, and ultimately maximize your life. Uh, You can find us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. Um, We're on Anchor. Um, So if you're trying to figure out how to listen to us, go to anchor.fm forward slash maximized, and you can get there from there. We're on Facebook as well. Go to facebook.com forward slash maximized PC. 
We're on Instagram and Twitter as well at Maximize PC, although I'm not, I have not been as active on those channels. So I really urge you to go to the podcast channel and go to the Facebook page first. Those are the best places to go. And if you want to reach out to me, maybe you like what you heard and you want to you know, say you want to hear it more on Maximized, or maybe you want to hear from me or be on my podcast as well, send me an email at Maximized Podcast. That's Maximized Podcast at gmail.com. Um, I'm always happy to have a conversation and, um, I'm sure Brendan can second that, um, you reach out, I'll reply. <laughs> he sure does. And I'll be sure to link all that stuff down in the description so you guys can find it as easily as, as possible. And I'll be sharing around all of Chris's stuff that way he can get some, some well-deserved attention. So thank you, Brendan. This has been a fun conversation. <laughs> um, I get passionate really easily. So thank you for letting, <laughs> thank you for being the outlet for that for today. Yeah, absolutely. Passion is kind of my, uh, my, my bread and butter. So I'm, I'm happy to help anyone get, get as passionate as I get about this kind of stuff. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, yeah. it was fun. I really appreciate being here with you and, uh, and take care. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Chris. I really appreciate it. And it's, it's, it's been great to, to have this conversation with you, you know, thanks to uh, all of my listeners for tuning in and all the supporters and all, all, you know, everyone who helps out with this podcast. And uh, yeah, hope to see you all next week. And don't forget if you ate today, thank a farmer. Mm -hmm.